Hey everybody, quick note before this episode, something happened with my recording setup and consequently my audio sounds terrible. I'm not quite sure what happened, but there's popping, clicking, hissing, metallic echo, constant dropout, everything that could have gone wrong with my setup did go wrong, but we chose not to re-record because one, Cam and I are really busy, two, the audio is still intact enough to be comprehensible, and three, the more interesting points in this discussion come from Cam, whose audio is much, much better by comparison. Uh, So thank you for your patience and understanding, not only with the delay since the previous episode, but with the audio horror you're about to witness. Uh, This could be much better with our next episode. So thank you. I hope you enjoy. Good evening, everybody. You're listening to Outside of a Dream, a podcast for the best in new horror cinema, video, and short fiction. I'm your host, Daniel Link, and with me again is Cameron Sui. Hey there. Yeah, I'd just like to apologize for not having an episode up last week. Our collective personal lives were a mess for that time, and it made it very difficult to get any recording in, but we were back, and we're recording, and we're talking about a Canadian horror film uh, from 2015. Uh, it's called The Interior. It was written and directed by Trevor Giris, uh, filmed in British Columbia, where it's primarily set. And if you're a fan of camping and you have a deep fear of getting lost in the deep dark woods, then this might be for you. Yeah, so this is something uh, I suggested to you that I sort of um, found um, through one of the various channels I was trawling for horror titles. And um, it's uh, it's one of those things that I think I'm, I'm almost incapable of having a objective opinion about because so much of this movie resonated on a sort of deeply personal level. Um, but I'm very curious to hear what you thought of it. Well, first of all, can you tell us everybody why it especially resonated with you? Yeah. So it's, it's an unusual movie in that it, it, and this is sort of, um, this sort of turns some people I've recommended, uh, the movie to off is that there is a very distinct first and second half. The first very half, distinct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the first 30 minutes is a, almost mumblecore indie comedy about a disaffected young man having trouble finding any purchase or joy in his job, and then also grappling with a very ambiguous uh, medical diagnosis that you're never quite sure what it is. And then at a a certain point, about a half an hour in, he decides to abandon his life completely uh, and go backpacking uh, in the woods by himself. So one of the many reasons that this was sort of deeply personal to me is that before I had children, when I was cool, um, the thing that I liked to do was to go on long backpacking trips by myself. Um, I did a couple of 50 and 60 mile treks um, over, you know, seven or eight days by myself. So I think the sort of tone and the the paranoid fear uh, of being alone in the woods I think I've never seen quite so accurately portrayed as this movie. And I think the thing that sort of really unsettled me and almost almost freaked me out, dare I say, is that uh, very early on when he's in the woods and things start to go unpleasantly for him, there's an incident that happens to him that happened to me almost identically. And it's it's not a common thing. The incident is that he, he hears an a noise in the night 
And when he's investigating it, he finds uh, a pair of spectacles or of glasses just tucked in a branch. Um, and it's this complete sort of non sequitur um, sign of another person. Um, and on one of my last uh, big solo treks, uh, a nearly identical thing happened to me where I went, uh, I wasn't even camping at a campsite. I went about, you know, 50 or 60 yards off a trail and just camped in a clearing, set up a fire that night and then started detecting the sort of flickering reflection of eyes in the woods. Oh, great. And I started to throw rocks at it thinking it was a bear because the day before I had had a bear encounter and the eyes didn't move. And I sort of got up the nerve and I walked towards them and I started hollering and stomping. And as I got closer, I realized uh, on a sort of stump of a tree, there was just a pair of glasses uh, in the woods. Again, not near a campsite, just in a clearing about 40 miles from the trailhead um, and no one else there. Just a fresh pair of glasses. That actually happened to you. That happened to me. And I got right back in my tent and I tried to sleep and failed for the rest of the night. It was deeply, deeply unsettling. So when that happened in the interior, uh, I realized pretty quickly that there was going to be no chance in hell that I wasn't going to love it no matter what happened after that. So this movie was made for me. Now, like, you have talked to me before about your love of camping, your disdain for glamping, which is to say, glamour <laughs> camper, you all have all the luxuries of civilized urban life with you. Like, you've told me about, did you say you like, nearly got lost in the desert or something like that? Yeah, so I, I, I'm i I'm not quite, if anyone's familiar with, with backpacking, I am not quite an ultralight guy, um, which is, those are the guys that shave the handle off their toothbrush to save an extra ounce. Really? Um, oh, Yes. Um, but I'm, I'm close to it. I, I camp very light and very minimally. Um, yeah, we did a, a Death Valley camping trip, um, and we did three days. We were planning to do three days up one slot canyon, which are those big, narrow, uh, deep canyons cut into the side of Death Valley. And then we were going to find a water, a spring at the top, um, and then fill up our water there and then come back down the other side. So we hiked up uh, the entire day, about 10 miles up. And it was in the dark, and we couldn't find the spring at night, so we camped. Um, and in the next morning, I woke up to everybody slightly panicking that we had discovered that the spring had run dry. Um, oh, and at this point, pretty much all of us had used all of our water coming up the, the hill. <laughs> so for the next two hours, we collected this absolutely filthy snow on a southern or a northern exposed uh, peak um, at the edge of Death Valley. Um, filter the um, the grit and grime out of it with a t-shirt and then later with somebody's French press uh, and then uh, filtered it with a pump filter so that we each had about a liter of water. Um, and then we um, rolled the dice and went back down out again. We were pretty dry by the time we made it out, but uh, everybody, to my knowledge, lived. I mean, that's, that's a happy ending. It's a happy ending. Yeah. It was it was a wonderful wonderful happy ending. It was a New Year's Day camping trip too. Now I feel like much more of a wuss about my most recent camping trip in Gatineau Park uh, two months ago now, where I packed light in terms of clothing, and I'd only ever gone camping in the summer before. This is the first time camping in fall, and just none of the stuff I brought. Like, I didn't have enough layers. I was just freezing to death in our tent. And my best friend, who was much smarter than me, just had to, like, warm me up with, like, this lantern we bought off. We not bought, we borrowed off of fellow campers. And it was a 
a horror moment for me, but a very kind of life affirming one. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think that's very much why I like camping is you, you have those moments where there is no abstraction to your survival. It is not uh, worrying about whether or not you can, you know, field a loan to get this, to get that. It is, am I going to die at this moment? Um, and I mean, that sounds really ridiculous to get excited about that, but there is something sort of very direct and very um, uncomplicated about that. Uh, I have a healthy respect for that now. So you were talking about like how this movie has a very clear division between its first and second acts. And I will say my initial impression of this movie, like say five to ten minutes, was did I rent the wrong movie? <laughs> now, I, I, I should mention here that that's uh, the case that has happened to several people I've recommended this to because there is a 2014 film called Interior that is also a horror film. So I have led several people down the wrong path that way as well. But no, you you did rent the correct movie. Yeah, I ran it by you before I rented it off YouTube. But, you know, like it started off five minutes of kind of like, again, the vibe of the 90s indie movie comparable to Clerks of just 20-something slacker dude living his life. And it goes on like that for five minutes and 10 minutes and 15 and it's not until like, I think I counted it at the 27-minute mark that we actually see the latest of late title cards, uh, the interior, and that's when the action cuts to the eponymous interior. So yeah, this main character, James, he's played by uh, Patrick McFadden, is this super introverted guy who seems to work at uh, as a copywriter position at some ad agency, quietly hates his very bad boss, lusting over one of his co-workers who all seem to have like a very shallow relationship with the girl he's been dating. And after a couple of doctor's appointments, including a very funny one in the first scene of the movie where the doctor reveals that he's been just smoking a joint the entire time during the examination. Yeah, it's like an editing trick. It like suddenly appears in his hand and he's not even aware that it's there. Yeah, because his hand has been off screen for that entire time. They never quite flat out say what the condition is he's been diagnosed with, but I'm guessing with the fact that one, in his terminal, and two, he's not physically impeded by it as he ventures into the woods, it's probably some variant of brain cancer. Yeah, I, I think the only hint you get is that he's losing sensation in his fingers and he occasionally has double vision, which um, to me sort of leads you down the path of thinking that it is a brain ailment that is going to be ultimately fatal, which I think also lends a great sort of unreliable narrator quality to the the woodsy half of the film. I, I actually I quite like that. I, you know, I, I think if if I'm being completely on the nose, I think the interior refers to as much uh, the interior of British Columbia as it is uh, the interior of his his head. I had a similar similar epiphany towards the end of the movie where I was just sitting there watching it and I saved up the title and I just quietly sitting on my couch going ah, and then I kind of got the joke and I finished watching it. Speaking of like interior, like you definitely kind of get glimpses at this very quiet inner life he has. Where I don't get it. I'm not sure if he has trouble connecting with people or if he's just this silent misanthrope who doesn't want to connect with people. And I think that could affect your enjoyment of the movie. Like James, he's not the best guy. Like I feel kind of safe in saying that. No, no, I, I think they actually um, they take some chances with making him somewhat unlikable at the beginning. You know, the very first day that he's in the uh, in camping, 
he sort of fails to sort of enjoy it for the first day and ends up breaking into a cabin and stealing wine. He's he's not a he's a very selfish and sort of uh, self propelled character. Um, even when when he breaks up with his girlfriend, um, you sort of get the sense that she's sort of been expecting and waiting for it, and she's just sort of irritated that he's wasted her time for so long. And he's he's not he, he's definitely focused on himself in that sequence. He's also a super conflict avoiding guy, which I got from the scene earlier on where he's forced to wait. He's called into his boss's office and forced to wait an hour as the guy jabbers into his cell phone, just talking casually with a buddy, and then realizes, oh wait, why did I call you here in the first place? And it cuts to a scene where he's in the washroom and he's just like going on this very eloquent rant that you can tell he wants to direct at his boss, like pointing out the man's shortcomings. And I will confess, I have done that before. Maybe not looking into a mirror, but as a conflict avoidance thing, not necessarily because I'm like a coward, though I am, uh, is to avoid unnecessary escalation. Like, I will get my thoughts out about a person completely in private so I can get that out of my system and then approach it more level-headedly. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll confess I'm, I'm the exact same way. I do a lot of um, practice conversations, uh, maybe not out loud, but in my head. Um, when I know there's going to be a conflict like that, I'll sort of run the scenarios and I will definitely be a lot more aggressive or a lot more eloquent uh, in my head than I end up being in the actual conflict itself. So that's another moment I think where I identified pretty strongly with the character, even as he's occasionally a piece of shit. Yeah, he is. But like, it's that moment where like, okay, I get you. You got an inner life. It's not a particularly rich one. It mostly involves getting stoned and recording really bad rap music. Just the worst. Yeah. <laughs> He's like recording, wearing a beanie in or a toque, whatever your preferred nomenclature is, in the recording studio. It's like that. Those first half hour of the movie is like a combination of dryly funny and pretty sad, all things considered. But yeah, as soon as he gets that diagnosis, he engineers a scenario in which he's fired from his job by printing off the most amateurish ad pitch ever. And even though the music masks out the argument between him and his boss, you can hear glimpses of, oh, I cc'd everybody on this email. And he loses his job. He tries his hand at an HVAC service for a bit. An <laughs> almost wholly uh, unnecessary sequence, but somehow one of the most charming when he, you know, as, a, as an uh, educated office worker goes into a blue collar HVAC department to interview. Uh, it's just really sort of sweet, the guys that he meets there. Yeah, they're more interested in, they recognize some of the jump. You are really overqualified for this. And <laughs> like the actual key of the interview is like, look, do you bowl? We're going to need you in our bowling league if you're going to be working with us. Like, I think he gives it a shot for a day. And then at that point, I think that's when he breaks up with his girlfriend and he says that he's going out west. Uh, you can tell from the opening scenes through some window shots that he's living in Toronto. And so he goes the farthest possible out west. He goes to British Columbia, which is in the same time zone as where you are in California. Uh, and he begins his, I would say, very ill-fated uh, backpacking trip. Yeah, the, the last thing he says to his girlfriend is that uh, I just want the opposite of whatever this is, which it, you know almost feels profound. And then she rolls her eyes and goes, oh, barf. Um, which really nicely undercuts uh, his his moment there. So as you were saying earlier, one of the first things he does when he goes camping, he straight up 
breaks into somebody's cab and he steals a cooler with some drinks in it. Uh, and later that day, uh, when he's like doing his business out in the woods, he espies the guy presumably looking for him, perhaps the owner of that cabin, who's able to stay out of sight. And I will say from this point on, it gets kind of hard to describe the plot. Not necessarily yeah. because it becomes weird, not because it becomes like something abstract or anything, but it's because it's a lot of sequences of this guy traveling during the day, sleeping in his tent at night, traveling during the day, sleeping in his tent at night. And it's during those night sequences that he starts to notice these weird little things, such as the glasses out there, uh, his flashlight falls upon out in the woods. So there is something in this movie that, due to my recent experience camping, set me really on edge. Yes, it, it's one of the most, like, there's a sense of paranoia about the little tiny things that start to happen at first. You know, he goes out in the middle of the night and the stove, his stove is on, and it's just, it's so unsettling. Yes, but the thing that really got to me, and this is because I was in a tent not like a month and a half previous at the time I watched this movie, is there's a shot in one of the night sequences where he's trying to sleep, and, you know, the camera perspective is one of inside his tent, and then you notice that something is pressing in on the tent and like the fabric of the tent is moving in to touch him. Just oh so gently and slow too. Yeah, and it's not like, oh, some branches leaning up the tent, like up against the tent. This is very clearly someone standing outside and just pushing in on the side of the tent. And that just set off every alarm bell in my head of nope. Nope. Yeah, that, that's and no, that's not nice. Don't do that, movie. It's it's and he has this incredibly authentic reaction when he wakes up of not even being able to scream when he sees it. He just sort of shrinks back in his bag and sort of chokes on any sound that he tries to make. So I will say, as someone who spent uh, many nights in a tent, um, there is something magically terrifying about a tent, um, and that idea of somebody pressing on the outside of a tent is a paranoid fantasy that i have often had while solo backpacking understandably yeah there's i think there's something the thing that makes tents so frightening for me is that you are completely visually walled off from the world but you are the least safe you've ever been inside an enclosure in your life there is literally the lightest possible fabric between you and whatever is outside in the dark um so it's inherently a terrifying there's a there's another movie called willow creek that has a similar sort of inside of a tent creep out scene and i think this sort of dethroned it as the most unsettling and accurately unsettling inside of a tent sequence. Because it's something that could physically absolutely happen. There's no phys- there's no supernatural element that needs to exist for that to happen. It's just, no, there's someone outside. They are spying on you. They're trying to catch you off guard. That is something that could reasonably happen. I think another one of the fears this movie sets off is you want to do this solo backpacking trip, and part of the appeal of that is the solitude. So when that sense of solitude of being alone is violated, that is very off-putting. The idea yeah. that, uh, like, oh, I'm alone here, this is nice, and then realizing, oh, there is someone else here. Another work of fiction that, while not horror, does that very well is the video game Firewatch, which came out last uh-huh. year. And yeah. you play, like, a... Firewatch Ranger who's camping in Wyoming over the summer. You keep scanning the horizon, keeping an eye out for smoke and fires. And you're communicating with your supervisor when you're out by a walk one night. And she mentions something about 
where are you, where are you right now? Like, I thought you were up there in your tower. It's like, no, I'm out on the walk. Well, then who's up in your tower right now? And you look up and you see those lights on when you previously shut them off. And it's this very deeply unsettling moment of, oh, I'm not alone here. Someone else has to jump on me. Yeah. And, and uh, when I'm out backpacking, solitude is something that I'm actively seeking. So occasionally I'll run into other people and I got to admit my first reaction, if I see them from a distance, is to back away and let them pass without them seeing me because I don't want to interrupt their solitude and I definitely don't want them interrupting mine. And he never really, he never talks to or confronts this um, person that he believes is following him and interrupting his solitude um, because he doesn't want to. He deliberately stays far back the only time he sees him. And that I think is something else that was just very deeply relatable for me. Yeah, and then stuff starts to escalate. It's more than just something pressing on the side of the tent. There is a very chilling moment in which the tent opens up, like the front flap in the middle of the night, and this man, like the same man from earlier, pokes his face in, illuminated by James's flashlight, and he doesn't say anything. He doesn't make a scream or another sound. It's just this look of aghast shock on the man's face, like he's being horribly traumatized by something. Sometimes it's a nightmarish face of pure yeah. fear. That's enough to set me on edge and break, have my flesh break out in goosebumps. He almost has a death-like pallor to him. Um, and, you know, I think at that point, it's, it, I think it's very, I think the, the movie exists largely within James's head. And I think if, you know, if we're being directly about the intent, I think that he's personified um, the, the threat just based on this person he saw the first day he was out. But it's, there's something sort of death-like and, uh, and, and just not threatening, but just so deeply dreadful about this face intruding just a few feet from him out of the darkness into his only safe spot. I think the way that the the, the nighttime um, visitations escalate is really uh, just handled so deftly because each step is just a little bit more unsettling than the last, but the changes between each one in the sort of boiling frog metaphor, it's not, you know, there's never an overt threat to him. It's just, it just gets worse and worse. There's sounds outside and then, you know, his food bag is being is being disturbed I also I, I want to point out that I think this has the best nighttime photography of the woods that I've ever seen in a film. You know, a lot of times nighttimes in, in woods, you, they'll shoot it in the day, basically, and then put a deep blue filter on it. Um, this is very clearly shot in the night with a singular, very powerful light to simulate his flashlight. And it just felt like the most authentic you know, woods illuminated by a single flashlight I've ever seen in a film. So that, that also just really killed me. <laughs> I can verify that authenticity. Having been walking around Gatineau Park to go to the outhouse in the middle of the night and having traced my flashlight across the woods in a similar manner, watching this movie thinking, yeah, they captured that. They captured how fucking scary that is. Yeah. Yeah, it just continues to escalate from there until maybe the greatest hint that this is taking place like largely in his own head, is extended sequence where he is chased by multiple shocked men through the woods that is very weirdly set not to your standard horror film score or even something ambient, but a Chopin piano piece. Yeah, and it's all shot in that sort of very syrupy slow motion as well. You know, at that point, that was one of those moments where I wasn't 
I wasn't sure if the movie was going to lose me in that moment because it was so shocking to see, you know, you get these very sort of realistic incursions onto his sense of safety before that. And then you have what is revealed to be and what very much feels like an out and out dream sequence. And there is something very nightmarish about setting it to this very sweet, calm and pleasant piano music. And the images are of him scrambling for his life up a hill as he's being chased. Ultimately, there's no typical resolution to this movie. Like, there's no real climax. What ultimately happens is one snowy morning, the camera pans and cuts its way through the foliage, and there's like a single shot of James lying face down near a stream. And it's implied that he's finally expired either from exposure or whatever affliction he has, be it brain cancer or some other terminal illness. And it just kind of non-resolutely ends. That's, I mean, that's the very last sequence, right? Mm-hmm. Prior to that, also, uh, most of what he's seen during the night is, is what's frightening, and the day is sort of this tension of him waiting for it. But one of the last days that he spends, doesn't he also see a corpse in a very similar position? He uh, does. Across the river. Yes. I think that that's the point where I do wonder if there is a supernatural element not necessarily in the sense of ghosts and goblins, but just this patch of forest where a bunch of similarly introverted, misanthropic men have found themselves trapped in a kind of spatial, temporal loop. And they're all just kind of sliding into contact with one another in this eternal patch of forest. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a completely valid reading of the text, I would think. Um, I think we both talked about how much we like ambiguous uh, stories that can can support multiple interpretations. This is a movie that will stretch your ability to to enjoy an ambiguous story. And I know a lot of people who love it up until the fact that it really has no resolution. Like I said, for me, I think it was there was a a point of no return where it would be impossible for me not to love it. Yeah, the lack of resolution is almost Cohen Brothers in its unfairness. I will say just. In the same way that something like Burn After Reading or No Country for Old Men end, just like, oh, okay, credits. Uh, But I did enjoy it overall. Like, obviously it resonated with you on a very specific level. Even then, like, I got a kick out of the story of this deeply introverted person who just couldn't connect with anybody and ends up in this kind of boreal hell on the run from maybe his own guilt, maybe like other people in a similar situation as him and they're trapped in this kind of purgatory. Uh, but yeah, if that kind of abstraction and ambiguity is not your thing, maybe check out a more concrete uh, forest horror story. Like say, I was about to say by which project that can get pretty ambiguous at times too. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, hey, try to play Witch 2016. It's pretty upfront and spells everything yeah. out for you. Very straightforward. There is a monster in the woods. Yeah, uh, but I did dig it overall. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that, yeah. Yeah, you specifically said, don't tell me your overall opinion of it. I wanted to hear it come out. Because it's been it's been wildly polarizing for the people that I, I know that I've I've suggested it to. So it's always interesting to hear how it reacts with other people. There's a couple interesting production notes. So 
while the BC interior is very much a real place, uh, it was actually filmed on Salt Spring Island, which is in between the BC mainland and Victoria Island. Uh, no, not Victoria Island, Vancouver Island. I've got my Canadian geography wrong. Uh, another interesting thing, do you know who lives on Salt Spring Island? No. Raffi. <laughs> like the banana phone dude down by the bay. Oh, I, oh yeah. I, I am I am deeply, deeply familiar with Raffi. Um, it's a, you know, they milk a lot of horror out of the, the location and, you know, sort of how impersonal and, and, and intimidating it is to him, but it is also absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very, very beautiful movie. Um, if you're interested in forest photography at all. So yeah, the interior, uh, you can rent that on YouTube like I did. Uh, once again, it was written and directed by Trevor Juris and starring Patrick McFadden as James. And now uh, for the rest of the show, we're going to talk about a short film like the other ones we've recommended. This can be found for free online. Uh, in this case, I find this one to be horror. I can definitely see why people watching it just find it more weird or directly comedic, but it taps into a very, very, very specific subgenre for what I've been getting into over the last few years. It's called Unedited Footage of a Bear. It was directed by Ben O'Brien and Alan Resnick. It aired on Adult Swim in the wee hours of the morning, Monday in 2014. And it came out not too long after the very infamous uh, viral short, Too Many Cooks, also by Adult Swim. Yeah, this is... um. This is a movie that I, it, it's impossible to try to explain it. Um, that said, we're about to try. It is set up, I mean, like the title, it, 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 it calls itself unedited footage of a bear. It begins literally with unedited footage of a bear. And you sort of get the sense that you're watching just some sort of raw chunk of video that somebody has uploaded to YouTube, you know, complete with sort of meandering, um, half, half-hearted commentary of somebody whispering. Uh, and then it cuts to a commercial, like it's a like a commercial that would be in a YouTube thing, complete with a skip ad button um, in in the middle of it, so that it really feels like it's just this commercial for an allergy medicine um, stuck in the middle of the most benign YouTube video ever. Yeah, and it's like set up like a lot of allergy med commercials are. Like the main character is Donna, she's like this. Not quite middle-aged, but almost there. Mom, she's talking about, oh, man, raising kids, like you have to be in two places at once. It has the same music and photographic style as one of those, say, not Ambien. Ambien's a sleep aid. Like a pharmaceutical commercial. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a, a sort of a, a standard sort of glossy look. Um, and there's almost no hints in the middle of it that it's anything other than a real ad except for this sort of unsettling moment of the kids yelling at her. And then it just continues into the segment of the mom driving around in her minivan through copy and paste suburbia, and she's smiling as the narrator talks about the medicine. And you see the very typical listing of side effects across the bottom of the screen. And it goes on like that. And then it keeps going on like that. And then eventually the narration goes away and the music fades out. And it's just the mom keep on driving through the suburbs. It just becomes quiet. And you see that she doesn't look as like made up and healthy as she was before. She looks really worn down, dark circles under her eyes. You, if you look closely, you can see that she's got a bunch of empty boxes of this medicine in the backseat of her car. Uh, eventually, she reaches into her dashboard glove box and pulls out another one to take a sniff from it. 
Donna keeps driving along, and she stops suddenly because she sees a worn yellow cardigan lying in the center of the road, one that's almost exactly like the one she's wearing. And she gets out, she goes to examine it, and it's at this point we see a shot that to this day leaves me with a kind of a chill up my spine, a very wide shot of her perspective looking down the street and standing in the distance perfectly rigid with her arms out at a very awkward angle is Donna, like another Donna. And just at that moment, she snaps her attention and chases Donna down, incapacitates her, runs her over. And then we get an increasingly stream of consciousness set of sequences of this alternate Donna taking over the original Donna's life kind of running roughshod around the house. It's implied to be kind of verbally and emotionally abusing her two kids, becoming even more and more depraved and visually worn down, while the quote-unquote like, real Donna is ultimately like crawling her way, completely injured back to the house, or like trying to get in contact with her by phone. Again, it gets very non-linear and abstract at a certain point, but Alan Resnick and... Uh, O'Brien, they seem to be kind of making a point about prescription drug abuse. Yeah, the whole time this is happening, there is also um, the small text at the bottom of the screen uh, continuing to talk about the risks of Claridrill should be weighed against the benefits of its use, etc., etc. Like we are still watching some sort of um, commercial that forgot to end. It almost feels like the commercial itself has become alive. Again, this is like a very, very niche form of horror that I don't even think has a name, and I'm still trying to find the right words to describe it. But it's almost as if the narrative structure of something has come alive and taken on a mind of its own, and it starts interacting with itself. The prime example of that kind of narrative horror to me is Mark Z. Danieleski's novel, House of Leaves, as well as uh, the David Lynch film, Inland Empire, and his recent season of Twin Peaks. Yeah, the structure itself becomes the story. Yeah, and it's a very hard kind of horror to pitch, it, to, pitch to somebody uh, because I can't even describe it properly. I'm stumbling over my own words here, but it's one that I find deeply unsettles me, and that's in the case of House of Leaves and the last Twin Peaks series. It kind of left me rattled and numb because it feels not so much like a creator talking to me as the story they've written imbued with a kind of life and I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think especially with people like us who um, have a lot of familiarity with horror tropes and, and the way that horror structure works, we get a sense of being able to predict, um, you know, Oh, I feel like I can, in a traditional horror movie, I could tell you when the jump scare is going to happen before it happens, just because I'm sort of keyed in onto the rhythms of those. So I think the, the sorts of horror films that um, are directly attacking that structure that I've gotten so used to um, that other horror films sort of take for granted is the, you know, the road they're traveling. I think it's, it's extra unsettling to me because uh, it leaves me without any sense of predictability. Yeah. And just you and I, we've been consuming horror for so long in so many different forms. We're just chasing new highs now. And I think it's <laughs> ones that have just become postmodern and post-structuralist. Like, oh yeah, give me that 
that Zizek horror give me that. I don't even know what Zizek talks about. I just know that he's kind of a meme philosopher at this point. I'm very sorry to the actual philosophy people I know. You don't have to apologize to Zizek at all. But yes, unedited footage of a bear can be found on YouTube. Uh, and as before, uh, the interior can be found on direct on YouTube. So uh, thank you again for taking some time out of your evening, Cameron. My pleasure. You can listen to us again in a couple of weeks' time. And in the meantime, guess who's scary? Don't be afraid to tap out. Hope you have a nice evening.